Let us fix our eyes on the one who makes all things new, and I'd like to tell you about one of the things that that one has made new. He has made for us a new kingdom. The Bible refers to it variously as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom is is a realm or a dominion under a king. It takes on the characteristics of the king. Paul in Romans describes the kingdom of God as characterized by peace and righteousness and joy. The government, the new government, which the Lord Jesus has ushered in and will bring to fruition upon his return, is a government the likes of which none of us have ever experienced. It's a government characterized by righteousness and peace and joy. No matter who has been in power in government in our country, now or in the past, or in future days, none can duplicate the kingdom of God and its distinct character. Again, characterized by righteousness, peace, and love. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is bringing to us. This is the government that is new. It is the kingdom of God. And I'm sure if you're here tonight and are thinking, uh, you probably want to be sure you know the means by which you can personally gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And because that's so important, uh, John, the writer of the book we've been studying for some time, wants to answer that question. How can a person be sure of their entrance into the kingdom of God. And to answer that question, uh, John writes to us a few verses, which I'd like to call your attention to. It's in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. We'll just look at a few verses tonight, as has been sort of our fashion. But they're stock full of, of good, potentially helpful information. Can you imagine if you came in here doubting about what dominion, realm, and government you're under, can you imagine if you could leave with assurance tonight that no matter else, what else may happen in 2017, you have satisfied the requirements, you have gained entry into the kingdom of God, that realm which, as Paul said, is characterized by righteousness, peace, and love. Well, John is going to tell us all about that beginning in John chapter 3. Here's what it says, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, Now, the last time we were together, that was last year. In 2016, we spoke about this uh, interesting character, Nicodemus. He was Jewish. He was um, a Pharisee, very religious, traditional, orthodox Jew. He was a member of the uh, governing body in ancient Israel called the Sanhedrin, which would be roughly equivalent to our Supreme Court. He was a person of notoriety and serious intent to practice his religion, Judaism, to such extent that he would succeed in winning God's favor. That was his ambition. Say what you want to about Nicodemus. He was sincere. Now, he was sincerely wrong, but he was sincere about his quest to be right with God. So this Nicodemus said to him, the him is Jesus. He said to Jesus, I'll tell you as soon as I turn the page. They're sticking. 
<laughs> he said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Does your Bible say something like that? How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I'll tell you why Nicodemus asked that question. In the prior verses, the Lord Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus is now asking this follow-up question based upon the Lord's statement. Some take this to be sarcasm by Nicodemus. And they say Nicodemus is just playing games. He's not serious about what the Lord said. And so he's making foolish statements here. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? But I don't think they're right about him being sarcastic. Uh, and uh, if he was, the Lord's response to him, which you will soon see, would have been entirely different than it is. I think Nicodemus is asking a serious question about a serious matter that plagued him. You see, here's the deal. He was at the top of his vocation. He was the theologian and religionist of his day. There were only 70 members of the Sanhedrin. He was one of them. When it came to practicing Judaism, few did it more successfully than this guy. If he went walking through the streets, people would bow before this pious individual. When it came to the law of Moses, he probably did better than most people. He was serious about doing things biblically so that he could win God's favor. But Nicodemus knew something was wrong on the inside. What's more, so too did the Lord. The Lord, we saw in the prior verses, could read Nicodemus' heart even before he put it to words. And he knew that Nicodemus was messed up, frustrated, and in pain. Because even though he was at the top of his religion game, he still was left with emptiness and lack of peace with Almighty God. This would have been a surprise to his peers for crying out loud. Again, they would see him walking through the streets in priestly garments and all the rest. He would just look holy and pious. If anyone had it together with God, people would have thought this guy did, but this guy knew it was a lie. It was a mask. It was a mask of religiosity, but behind the mask was an insecure individual who, if you said, Nicodemus, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Nicodemus, if he was honest and trusted you, would have to say, I don't know. Nicodemus would say, that's the nature of my life. It's a life of spiritual uncertainty and insecurity. You know what he would say? He said, my life is like two scales. On one side, I've heaped up bad deeds, thoughts, and words, things contrary to holy God. On the other side, I'm trying to balance it out by good stuff. I'm trying to do good things to uh, militate against the bad things. And he would say, I hope when I stand before God that the stuff on the good side of the scale outweighs the stuff on the bad side of the scale. Nicodemus would say, but I don't know this for sure until I stand before God. He would say, therefore, I'm torn up on the inside. The best of what my religion has to offer has not offered me peace. I'm not at peace within because I don't have peace with God. And Jesus knew this because he knows what's going on in our lives before we even verbalize them. 
And so Jesus cut right to the quick and said to him in the prior verses, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Now, Nicodemus, in essence, is saying, he's not saying, oh, come on, Jesus, who do you think you are? And what are you talking about all this crazy stuff, born again? Am I supposed to enter my mama's womb again? That's not the attitude with which he's approaching the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I yearn for a transformational experience. What my religion has given me has not given me peace. And it's not that I have failed at it. That's the point, Jesus. If I have failed at being religious, I can understand my failings and despair. But I've succeeded. People have uh, promoted me to the highest of positions in Judaism. But my problem is I'm empty and uncertain about my standing with God. You told me I need this kind of born-again experience, but Jesus, the only born-again experience I know is physical and anatomical and biological. You know what Nicodemus is admitting to? He said, I'm the theologian of Israel, but I don't have spiritual wisdom. He's saying, Lord Jesus, I'm not trying to be a wise guy. I'm seeking wisdom about this. You told me I need to be born again. How could this be? I can't enter my mother's womb again. That's the only kind of born again experience I know of. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I know I need help from above. I know I need resources beyond me. You're telling me I need to be born again. What does that mean? That's essentially, that's essentially what he's saying. Hey, I'm interested, Lord Jesus. In fact, he called Jesus rabbi. He said, I'm interested, Rabbi Jesus, but how can a second physical birth take place? It's smart as well-educated, as wealthy, and all the rest as this guy is. All he knows is what's material and physical. And when it comes to spiritual truths and realities, he doesn't know much at all. So when the Lord uses this expression, you must be born again, he's not being sarcastic. He's confused. He is grasping for answers. He is saying, born again, I don't, how is this possible? I don't understand. He thinks because he's confined only to material realities, so too is the Lord Jesus. He doesn't see, see, he doesn't have spiritual, he doesn't have spiritual insights at this point. He's saying, Lord, help me. Help me understand. I don't understand this. I don't know how I am to be born again. So see, I think he's gotten a bum rap. He's not playing games. He is, he is as sincere and serious as sincerity and seriousness could be. He just doesn't get, he's honest enough to say, I don't know how, I agree with you, Lord Jesus. I need to be transformed. You say, I have to be born again. What? How, what does that mean? And here's the Lord's response, verse 5. Notice, if Nicodemus was playing games, the Lord Jesus might not have answered at all. Or he might, not, he might have kicked the dust off his feet and said, go from me. But he doesn't do that at all. Look what he says, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly. By the way, you know what the words for truly, truly are in Hebrew? Amen. 
Amen, amen, amen means it is true. It is true to the max. So, so when the Lord is saying truly, truly, he's really saying to Nicodemus, I'm not messing around. This is, this is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He knows what Nicodemus is searching for, an explanation of what the born-again experience is. How can I be born again? And the Lord answers, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. The Lord here is telling Nicodemus that the born-again experience, which he is talking about, has nothing to do with the product of flesh, a man and woman coming together and birthing a child, the Lord is saying the born-again experience, which you need, Nicodemus, is spiritual in nature. It's attributable to water, as it says here, and the Spirit. In order for you, in order for anyone to enter into the government of God, the atmosphere in which God reigns, in order for you to be part of the dominion of God and experience its righteousness, peace, and love, in order for this to happen, the Lord says, truly, truly, amen and amen, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. So what does that mean? water and the spirit? The answer is, it depends who you ask. There are lots and lots of opinions. Uh, some say, for instance, that water is a reference to baptism, such that Jesus is saying to be born again, to enter into the kingdom of God, to be saved. You need the spirit uh, but you also need to be baptized. See, water and the Spirit. Well, let me just tell you, without going into too much detail about baptism, that can't be right. Why? Because it flies in the face of what the rest of the Scriptures say about the nature of salvation. It's not a function of anything we do, baptism or anything else. It's a function of our simple faith response to the inexpressible grace of Almighty God. Baptism is not something someone does in order to be saved. Baptism is what one does having been saved. When one is saved, one is baptized in a baptistry, perhaps like that, uh, during which time they paint a picture for us uh, without words. When they go down and come up, they are essentially saying, by faith I am identified with the death burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a statement an unsaved person could make. That's only a nonverbal declaration one who already is saved can make. So I do not believe the Bible teaches, and we don't teach here, what's called baptismal regeneration. Have you heard that term? Kind of a big baptism, meaning the waters of baptism is what regenerates. No, 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 no. <laughs> Jesus is the one who saves. The water publicly declares that one has been saved. 
That's a symbol, powerful symbol, pointing to the reality of salvation wrought in one's life by faith in the gracious provision of Almighty God. That is of Jesus as a substitute on the cross. So I don't think this phrase, born of water and the Spirit, means you have to have faith in Jesus and to be baptized in order to be saved. In order to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus alone. Put a period there, period. There's nothing else. There's no comma. There's no comma. Jesus did it all. The Bible says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. We didn't contribute one bit. It's not because of baptism that God saves us. Because he saves us, we obediently are baptized. See the difference? So I just rule out that particular interpretation of this phrase, born of water and the spirit. Well, then what does it mean? So bear with me for a little Greek lesson. To me, this solves the dilemma. Can you see that little word and between the words water and spirit? See it? You got water on one side, then you have this little word and in the middle, followed by the word spirit, water and the spirit. The word and is a Greek word, which means and. And also, even. Even. Attaching that meaning to the word in this context, listen how it reads. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, even the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. To me, that's the explanation here. Unless one is born of water, even the spirit, what the Lord is doing is equating water with the Spirit and essentially is saying in order to be born again, you need to be cleansed by the sanctifying waters of my Spirit just like water cleanses you of filth and dirt and corruption, so too my Spirit in you will cleanse you of corruption and sin and defilement and all the rest. The water... Even the spirit, the two are absolutely synonymous. So uh, to further, I think, support this perspective, let me read to you Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Listen, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Get this, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You see? The water here is a reference to the cleansing, purifying, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That, to me, is the best way to explain what we just read here in this text. But here's the main point of what the Lord is saying. There has to be spiritual birth if one is to enter into the kingdom of God. One's physical birth and all that is attached to it, pedigree, wealth, a certain racial or ethnic identification, maybe that you're proud of, too proud of. It doesn't matter. Anything associated with your physical birth is inadequate to enable you to enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Well, I'm going to tell you, that is, that's terrible. That flies in the face of all of our human pride. 
Nothing you have accomplished by wit and wisdom, no degrees attained, no stock portfolio, no athletic accomplishments, no nothing associated with your physical birth is adequate to enable you to enter into the kingdom of God. No good deeds, no acts of uh, charity, no humanitarian effort, nothing associated with your uh, first birth, your physical birth is adequate for you or I to enter into the kingdom of God. Why is it that one's physical birth is not enough? I mean, we like to think that the, these cute little kids, when they're born, you know, they're just filled with virtue and all the rest. Uh, I, I have a couple of grandchildren, three of them, and the newest one is three months old, and she's a doll, unbelievably cute as could be, and uh, she was conceived in sin. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to tell her that. It just ruined her day and everything, but it's, I mean, she's pretty as can be and cute as could be and all the rest, but her physical birth uh, provides her with insufficient uh, attributes to cause her to qualify for the kingdom of God. There's not one thing associated with her physical birth, nor uh, yours nor mine, that qualifies us for the kingdom. Do you know the Lord Jesus is saying this to one of the key leaders in Israel? You know what the Lord Jesus is saying? Your Jewishness <laughs> is not enough to gain you entry into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, your rabbiness, your, your, your theological stuff, your, your member of the government of Israel, none of that stuff is adequate for you to gain entrance. Oh my God, the Lord Jesus in one fell swoop is wiping away everything this guy, Nicodemus, has depended on as the means by which he'll bargain with God when he stands before him. God will say, but on what basis should I allow you into my kingdom? And Nicodemus will say, well, I'm Jewish. And God will say, ah, next. But I'm a member of the Sanhedrin, ah, I'm a Pharisee, ah, I meant well, ah. Mm. Anything associated with one's physical birth is absolutely inadequate to gain one entrance into the kingdom of God. And why is that? Well, verse 6 tells us why. It's because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh here is a a reference to us, human nature. Human nature is referred to as the flesh. The flesh is corrupted by sin, inherited. So even the cutest of little kids who looks innocent is not innocent. That little one has inherited a sin nature. And I know this is a shock, but do do you know even a little one is subject to the judgment of God for his or her sin? It's a sin problem. Each of us has been conceived in sin. And and so so flesh here is a reference to our uh, essential nature, our natural selves. This is our identity as humans, and it is sinful and therefore subject to God's judgments. Now, you may have been born to very fine parents. That's wonderful. That's a blessing if that's the situation you were born under. But it doesn't matter because, according to this text, that which is born of flesh, you, 
is flesh. <laughs> That's it. In other words, flesh can never be expected to evolve into something better, like spirit. Flesh produces and reproduces flesh. Even if there are a hundred rebirths of a biological kind, it's, it's rebirth in the same kind. Flesh, it says, is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is is spirit. Sinful flesh, folks, produces nothing other than sinful flesh. If you wonder why your kids and grandkids are the way they are, it's because of you. And you are the way you are because of those who beget you. And on and on and on. Folks, sinful flesh can only beget more sinful flesh. You do not have to learn how to sin. We're experts at it. It comes naturally to us. And it can never change through the passage of time through self-help books or by getting together and making New Year's resolutions. We need to be born again, you see. Why? Because flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, this is our big problem, uh, People redefine the problem. You know, some of our most esteemed leaders, I think, misdiagnose our problem. They say it's the environment. It's global warming. That's our number one problem. That's not true. If it's an issue, and that's debatable. If it is an issue, that's surely not our number one malady. Our number one malady is that flesh is flesh. We're in the flesh, and the flesh cannot produce anything that is acceptable to God, sufficient to gain us entrance into heaven. And we underestimate the seriousness of our malady. So we speak in terms of mistake-making. So when people behave consistently with their fleshly nature, they sin. They don't call it that. They just say, I made a mistake. You see, that, that is a euphemism. That is a paring down of our real disease. Our real disease is that we have inherited a fleshly sin nature from our forebears who inherited it from theirs. That's our number one malady. Our problem is not the reformation. Good night. We need transformation for crying out loud. Why? Because what's born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we fool ourselves. We love this. We fool ourselves into thinking we can do better. But we're really missing our malady. The problem is not that we do bad things from time to time. The problem is that we do bad things because we are sinful. That's the problem, don't you see? And so even if we stop doing those bad things for a spell, it doesn't eradicate the dominion of the flesh in which we are held captive. That's the way it is, you see. Flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So our malady requires a remedy other than self-effort. Nicodemus manifested self-effort to a high degree. Our malady requires a remedy other than self-effort, other than religious behavior, or other than New Year's resolutions, the remedy we need is to be born again. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is 
flesh. Our physical birth for everyone here has produced a corrupt nature. And this corrupt fleshly nature due to our first birth means that we need a new nature, a spiritual nature, and that stems from a second birth. We need a new nature produced by God's Spirit because, as it says right here in the text, I'm just reading it, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We need a new birth, and the new birth can only be produced by spiritual means. A spiritual birth takes place when someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The Bible says that one becomes a new creature in Christ. When a person is born again uh, through the Spirit of God, he receives a new nature and is made fit for the kingdom of God. So in the flesh, Nicodemus did really well. In the flesh, Nicodemus did a whole lot better probably than most of us in here. But his fleshly efforts could not bring him into right relationship with God. And something inside of him told him that. He was frustrated and he was defeated and he didn't feel right with God. He wasn't at peace at all. Might that be your situation, someone here tonight? Just not right with God. Just not at peace with God. Nicodemus was told he needed to be born anew. Do you? Jesus told Nicodemus that the only way his defeated life could be transformed into a victorious life was to be born again by the Spirit of God. Folks, we need a new nature. We need to be born anew. We need the cleansing work of water, which is the Spirit of God in us, to wipe away our sins, to strengthen us so as to be who we otherwise cannot be and do what we otherwise could not do. Does this whole thing amaze you? The fact that we, in our sin nature, have offended a holy God, does it amaze you that he not only wants to forsake us, and destroy us, does it not amaze you? Do you not marvel in the fact that the very God whom we has, have offended has stated his will and ability <laughs> to enable us to be born anew? Is it not simply amazing that this one who we are adversaries with wants to be on friendly terms with us to such an extent that he has enabled the means by which we could be at peace with him. Is that not absolutely amazing? In fact, this is so amazing that we may be prone to dismiss the whole thing as being wishful thinking in just a dream. It's not real. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Come on. Nobody's going to do that for me. And so in keeping with this possibility that we could become so amazed by the Lord's offer to us uh, that we don't accept it, he says this to Nicodemus in verse 7. He said to him, do not be amazed or do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, don't misunderstand. The grace of God is amazing. But don't let it be so amazing that you are paralyzed in unbelief. 
Listen, there's a bunch of stuff in life that is incomprehensible, yet still true. There are lots of things that are marvelous, yet still true. In life, we can be amazed by a truckload of stuff, and yet they still be true. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, don't keep this off at arm's length just because you don't have full comprehension of it. Nicodemus, I know you don't fully understand how this works, nor even why I would make this offer to you. Forget it, Nicodemus. Get out of your head. Look to your heart. It's empty. I wish to fill it and change it. Nicodemus, don't stand there in paralyzed amazement. I mean, it's one thing to marvel, but it's better to believe. Nicodemus, believe in me. That's essentially what the Lord Jesus is, is saying here. Now, I want to close with something. Can you take a closer look at verse 7 with me just for a moment? Can you see the first occurrence of the word you, Y-O-U, in verse 7? Do not be amazed that I said to you. Do you see that one? That you uh, is in the Greek singular. Makes sense. Because it's the Lord having a conversation with one other, Nicodemus. So it makes sense, that being the case, that the word you here would be singular. Do not be amazed, in this case, Nicodemus, that I said to you. Okay, so the first you in that verse is singular. But the second you, can you see the second you? You must be born again. This is very interesting. That's not singular. That's plural. Now, this is really great that it's plural. Because in making that you plural, the Lord is saying, what I have offered to Nicodemus, I offer to you. If I can translate this into Texan, the Lord is essentially saying, all of y'all must be born again. That's what he's saying. And he's saying to all of us who are looking in on the conversation, private conversation the Lord had with Nicodemus, he is saying, Nicodemus is just like you. Nobody's different than anybody else. Every one of you has been born into sin and you have a fleshly nature. I know you all like to divide on the basis of ages and genders and races and all that other kind of stuff. Okay, if that's what you want to do. But the uh, thing you have in common, that, that you're all flesh. That's the way it is. So we're looking in on this conversation, and the Lord says to a fleshly guy, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But Nicodemus, since you are just like everybody else, since everybody else is just like you, you all must be born again. Now, when the Lord says that, he's not saying there's something you must do, because I want to ask you, what could you or I do to be born again? You tell me. Nothing. Now, a bunch of us are trying to clean up our act, <laughs> uh, but we're not going to be as good at it as Nicodemus was. It doesn't work. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you see. So when, when, when the Lord says, you all must be born again, he's not saying, now hurry up and get this done. He's saying, you must receive from me the capacity to be born anew. Now, I want to tell you something that may offend you. I have had this experience. I have been born again. 
And if you have nothing else to do sometime, I'll give you the evidence thereof. I'm not being arrogant because I didn't do a thing to earn it, deserve it, merit it, or bring it about. But I have received from this Jesus the capacity to be born again so that my fleshly nature is now compromised by a new spiritual nature that I never had before. So I'm looking you nine. I can tell you I have been born again. But I know maybe some here have not. If I was you, and couldn't unabashedly, unashamedly say, just as I did, I have been born again. If I was you, I'd be terrified right now. I would be saying, why did you give the born-again experience to that little Jewish guy from New York and not me? If I was you before I went home tonight, I would petition the Lord Jesus, and I would say... Please enable me to be born again like that guy. Why not me, Lord Jesus? Is there something special about that guy? No, there isn't. He's as needy, as fleshly, as sinful as me. He had this born again experience and it changed his life. Your spirit in him has cleansed him from sin. The penalty of it, removed. The power, minimized. And one day, the very presence, totally eradicated. That's what he's talking about. And you're saying, but why didn't that happen to me? Why did you give him the born-again experience and not me? If I was you, I would beg the Lord Jesus Christ, please give me this experience. Because if I die, I die in the flesh. Why? Because flesh always begets flesh. You don't evolve into anything else. I've been to a bunch of funerals lately, and it's just fascinating to me. Did you know that no bad people ever die? Suddenly they become saintly during the funeral service. Whether they have been reprobates in life or not, somehow we just want to make ourselves feel, feel better. You know, everybody goes to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. No, they don't. Because there can't be flesh in the spiritual domain of Jesus called heaven. There can't be unholiness there. In order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, that's what John's talking about here. You have to have water, even the Holy Spirit of God, as the change agent. I'm going to tell you, that has happened to me. I have been cleansed by the very Spirit of God, forgiven by the very Spirit of God, strengthened by the very Spirit of God, who has taken up his residence in me to enable me to live an entirely different life. I didn't say sinless. Oh, no. But an entirely Different kind of lifestyle. If I was you, I'd be saying, why him and not me? And I would be having that conversation with the Lord Jesus before you get on the road tonight. Why? Because you may not make it to your next destination. That's why. I would say, Lord Jesus, I'm a little 
put off that you would have given that guy what you have not yet given me. And I'd be nervous. I'd be real nervous about missing out. Because you see, when Jesus says you must be born again, there's not a thing you can do about it. Go ahead, go be born again. How? It has to be from him. If I was you, I would, no, I wouldn't ask. I would plead. I would plead, Lord Jesus, I'm empty. I'm frustrated. If you asked me what happened to me when I died tonight, I don't have a clue. I'm like this Nicodemus character. I do not feel right with you. I don't have peace with you. Oh, God, transform me Give me a new nature. This nature, which is your nature, would you implant it in me? Would you make me new? Would you make me a spiritual being, not just a fleshly being? In other words, Lord, would you save me from my own fleshly nature? And would you save me from your wrath, which will be directed towards my fleshly nature? Would you implant your spirit in a way I don't understand but believe? Would you implant your spirit in my life so that he umpires the antagonism between you and I and now we are on peaceful terms? If I was you, I would beg the Lord Jesus to graciously overcome my sinful nature by adding to it his spirit, I would say, Lord Jesus, I wish to be born again. It's marvelous, but believable. It's amazing, but believable. It's incomprehensible, but believable. I believe you and only you can make me new. Make me new. If I was you. I would beg the Lord Jesus to enable me to be born again. And if you do that tonight, I would encourage you to go back to that room before we leave and tell somebody who could help you understand a little more fully what you just got yourself into. You know what you just got yourself into if you accept the king? You got yourself into the kingdom of King Jesus. And what's it characterized by? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Republicans can't do that. Democrats surely can't do that. <laughs> Only King Jesus can do that. I want to be a subject of the king because his domain is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. And the only way to enter into that kingdom is through water, even the Spirit. That's the means by which we must be born again. Simple, marvelous, altogether, incomprehensible, inexplicable. Who would love us this way? Who would be so merciful and gracious? Only God. He's categorically different. Only God. Take him up on it. What the Lord Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is not a theological declaration. It's an invitation. To everybody, because the second you is plural. 
It's an invitation to be born again. If I was you, I would say, Lord Jesus, cause me to be born again tonight. I invite you to inhabit my life as Savior who suffered and died in my place for my sins. Take up your abode in my life. Forgive me. Make me a new person in Christ Jesus. Folks, I got to tell you, we'll close with this. I should have closed, but I would close with this. It's just a few words. I just need to, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. Remember, the second you is all y'all. Nobody is excluded. Feel left out? Your fault. Because the Lord Jesus just gave the most inclusive invitation on earth. You, plural, must be born again. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray. In the power of your spirit, your influence, there be not one person who leaves this place the same. Instead, new due to the new birth. And thus, being able to live this new year on an entirely different plane. I pray you would arouse to jealousy the one who's not at peace with you, not right with you, on the run from you, alienated from you. Oh God, I pray you would disturb that one so that one, even though he or she doesn't understand all things, understands enough to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Give me the born again experience. Let me gain entrance into your sphere of influence, which is spiritual now, which is eternal, and which will be my literal place of abode when you return or when I die, whichever comes first. Oh God, save me. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.